Good morning, everybody. Um, thanks, Billy. It's kind of like the grandfather. You all wish you always had his comforting presence, just keeping us all safe and keeping us all right. A uh, very warm welcome to our service of worship here at Kirkpatrick. Um, my name is Dan Hayes, and I belong to this community of Jesus' disciples here in Ballyhackamore. It's wonderful to be able to look out and to see your faces this morning, especially if maybe you haven't been able to get out for a little while, and even better if this is a, a strange and familiar environment and somewhere where you're not used to finding yourself on a Sunday morning. Today we are going to continue our journey through the book of Acts with the help of Paul. Last week we learned about the religious hierarchy, who saw what God had to offer and they wanted to keep it, to contain it, and to control it. Something that had to be earned by religious rituals and observance. They wanted to be able to say who was in and who was out. Today we're going to meet a man who sees the things that God is offering and he wants to get his wallet out. He wants to be able to see how much it would cost to buy such a thing. How much money is he going to have to pay to get in on the mystery? Well, we come this morning, brothers and sisters, to receive a costly gift, but a gift freely given and for us to freely receive from our Father in heaven. It's nothing that we have earned. It certainly isn't something that we deserve, and no amount of money could buy it. So as we enter worship this morning, I encourage you to pause, to take a deep breath, to ask God to quieten your heart and your soul, and perhaps even as a physical manifestation of your willingness and your humility to receive God's gift this morning, to open out your hands as we bow and we enter worship together. From Psalm 147, the Lord covers the heavens with clouds, provides rain for the earth, and makes the grass grow in mountain pastures. He gives food to the wild animals and feeds the young ravens when they cry. The Lord's delight is in those who fear him, those who put their hope in his unfailing love. And from Romans chapter 5, there is more to come. We continue to shout our praise even when we're hemmed in with troubles. Because we know how troubles can develop passionate patience in us. And how that patience in turn forges the tempered steel of virtue. Keeping us alert for whatever God will do next. In alert expectancy such as this. We're never left feeling shortchanged. Quite the contrary. We can't round up enough containers to hold everything God generously pours into our lives through the Holy Spirit. Even in times of trouble, there aren't enough vessels out there to hold the blessings and the gifts that our God generously gives to us. Let's stand together and sing. 
Come, now is the time to worship. Let's bow our heads and let's pray together. Father, we thank you for that beautiful picture of our God. He gives us his gifts so abundantly, so lavishly that there aren't enough vessels to catch all the blessing. Father, draw us into your loving presence this morning. Still us. Grant us your peace. So that the eyes of our hearts will be open again to the extent of your love and blessing. Father, we sing of your presence. We know the promises you have made. It fills our songs. But in the rush of life, as we become embroiled in the busyness of the moment, we step away from you and try to go out on our own once more. Father, forgive. Have mercy on us. Father, we sing of your glory and that it radiates and is shared with us. But in the weekly grind, whether in constant push and rush or in the mundane, we allow that sense of your glory to be sapped our expectancy of seeing and experiencing your glory as we worship, pray and live out our lives in the day-to-day is diminished. Father, forgive us. Have mercy on us. Father, we sing of your power, but often fail to make time for you. So that when push comes to shove, we do things in our own strength, our own ability, trusting in our own thinking. Your power allows us to witness to Jesus, to bring him with us to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the world, to bring him with us in every situation we find ourselves, to see your kingdom come on earth and your will be done as it is in heaven. Spirit of God, forgive. Have mercy on us. And so, restored and forgiven, we open up our hands again to share in the presence the glory and the power of the living God in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. So, earlier on I said that it was great to see you, especially if this is a place where you are not likely to find yourselves. And that is definitely true of our two guests that we're going to be asking to come on up to the front for a little interview here. Um, So this year in Kirkpatrick, um, it's great to have these two guys, Matty and Ben, who are going to be joining us as interns working with some of our young people. So I got it wrong earlier on. There's a 50-50 chance of which, which one's which. But then Ben with the beard. So we can all remember Ben with the beard. And uh, hopefully we'll be able to distinguish these two guys. So uh, you're very, very welcome. Uh, it's great to see you. I thought we might start off just by asking you, can you tell us something about yourselves and what you're doing these days? So, Matty. Yep, so I'm Matty. 
Um, I am 20. I'm from Jordanstown, um, if any of you know where Jordanstown actually is. Um, and yet, same as Ben, I am second year um, at Belfast Bible College. Um, I went to Belfast High um, and left school two years ago. Um, and when I finished school, went on to do an internship with Scripture Union. Um, wasn't really sure what I was actually going to end up doing after that. Um, so went to go and do this internship. Um, and yeah, that sort of pushed me down the road of going to Bible College. Um, so that's, yeah, that's why I am there at the moment. That's great. Yes, and my name is Ben, with the beard. <laughs> and, and I'm also 20, and I'm doing, studying theology at Belfast Bible College um, alongside Maddie. Uh, so uh, what you need to know about me is I love movies. Um, I love music as well. Can't play any instruments, but I love it. Uh, and uh, as part of studying theology, the thing I love about it the most is getting to just delve into scripture every day in your normal class and in your lectures, and that's really special. Um, and as part of that, we have lots of different modules that we do. And yes, some of them are a lot more boring than others, <laughs> but you have to persevere, and it's always very rewarding um, because um, with, e- with each study, and it might, whilst it might be challenging, um, you always find yourself uh, marveling at the awe, in awe of your Savior even more, um, just through your studies. So yeah, it's really good. That's great. So you hold on to the microphone there, Ben. Yeah. And um, where would we find you in Kirkpatrick? What what are you going to be involved in? So yeah, in Kirkpatrick, you'll find me on a Friday night um, at Converse, and that will be alongside Helen and Clive. Um, and the team of leaders there and I'll be helping out to facilitate just running of that and helping out with all the jobs and anything that needs um, and as part of my placement specifically um, I will get to do two of the talks on different nights um, and also help out with the running of the activities on two of the nights as well um, so yeah that's great and same question then for you Maddie what are you going to be involved in in Kirkpatrick yeah, so I'm going to be around on Sunday evenings um, at District with Dan and Emma um, and Victoria. And yeah, that's where I'll be doing the youth um, youth sort of stuff. Um, and yeah, so this term we're looking at First Peter, um, and that'll be our sort of theme for the rest of the year. So that's where I'll be. Super. And um, what are you hoping to gain from uh, being with us uh, over this next year, Maddie? Uh, one of the main things that I'm sort of looking to gain um, is, well, mainly experience. Um, but so after Bible college, I'm looking to sort of go into uh, youth ministry. Um, and I've had experience in my own church, and I've had experience with different organizations, with the likes of SU, Exodus, different things like that. Um, but never had experience in a different church setting. Um, so, yeah, I'd love to get to know just how youth can be done in a different setting um, and yeah even just to get to know the young people and to journey with them this year as well. Super. Yeah, I'm very similar to Matty. I'm here for the experience um, and I come from a rural church background and it'll be a lot smaller than here and um, so it's just really exciting to see how evangelism and discipleship can work in this different context and different setting. And I also feel that the, the church itself as a whole is coming out of lockdown and after um, sort of dealing with all of that. And it's a really exciting time to be um, just in, in the church and to be helping out and serving. Um, and it's somewhere that um, hopefully I'll, I'll be able to gain lots of experience from being here. 
And how can we be praying for you guys and, and your experience as you journey with us over this next year? Uh, yeah, well, I think, um, firstly, for Converse and for District, as we both um, help out in that, and we would be able to gain lots of experience and also that we would be able to um, give something to the young people there and we would be able to help out them as well. Um, and I think also just for our studies and for our assignments as we try and balance the, the both of them uh, as our placement and our um, studies as well. Um, yeah, Ben has just stolen all of mine. Um, but yeah, as well, that just balance between the two, between studies um, and between work here and just life in our own churches as well. Um, just that things would go smoothly and that things would, yeah, all work out. Well, that's great, guys. Um, maybe if we give them a great welcome. <laughs> we'll let you guys take your seats and let's uh, commit um, to encouraging you, uh, continuing to support you and praying for you uh, throughout your year. Um, next up, uh, we've got Robert. Uh, Robert, the vacancy uh, convener, uh, has got a few words just of update for us all. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. It's uh, good to be with you again in Kirkpatrick. When I was coming through the door, um, or just up to the door, Brian said, me a long time no see. And indeed, it has been a while since I've been here last. Uh, it was before the summer. But Paul, since he finished his studies, has been doing such a good job that I feel almost superfluous to requirements. Or, um, but it's good nonetheless to be here with you. I thought that at this stage uh, it would be helpful. I know that Gareth um, has regularly updated you on progress, but in a formal way, um, I felt that at this stage it would be good to uh, update you just on the steps ahead. Now, Gareth told you a few weeks ago that the Reverend Graham Kennedy, who is presently uh, the minister of Ballygrini Presbyterian Church just outside Bangor, um, will be heard here in the church by the church family at the three services on Sunday, the 7th of November. There will be an evening service as well on that day. Please plan, if you can, to be at one of the services in person. Um, each will be slightly different. So you can listen to the other services, the ones that you're not able to get to, um, as they will be live streamed. So if you can, um, make that commitment on that day, um, as far as possible, to, to watch all three services. Perhaps at this stage, uh, an outline of the process that brought us to this point might be useful um, for the congregation. We received leave to call by Linkage Commission. Uh, that, that's permission to move ahead with the vacancy, the Linkage Commission being satisfied that all the conditions were uh, in place. Um, 42 names uh, were submitted by the congregation for consideration by the Kirk Session. Couldn't believe it when I counted them this morning that there were 42. There were two additional inquiries uh, from people that we didn't approach. And at that stage, I assured all the candidates of confidentiality, um, and that, that was an important factor. It's interesting that at, at each stage, uh, the number reduced by about half, so the number was narrowed down to 17 um, by the Kirk session, um, 17 people that your elders believed would be um, suitable, or could be suitable um, 
and a good fit for the congregation here. I contacted those 17 um, in mid-June, and approximately half that number took the profile uh, prepared by the elders um, about the congregation, giving a background and your vision and all the rest of it. And the uh, big conversation uh, that Gareth led in the early part of the spring fed into that document. Uh, Those individuals who took the uh, profile were allowed the summer months of July and August um, to pray through the whole matter and uh, to think about it. And I contacted them again at the end of August and a small number then agreed to come and meet the Kirk session. Now those meetings took place on the 18th of September and each lasted for about an hour and a half. So substantial time was given to each of those meetings. And at the end of that, the Kirk session deliberated for two meetings. Um, immediately after, uh, afterwards on the Saturday, and then coming back after time to reflect and pray, coming together again on Sunday evening, and um, the elders settled on Graham as their choice um, to put to the congregation. Now, the call of a minister is the prerogative of the church family, and so it's very much now that the process is handed over to you, the church family, as a whole. And I just do want to emphasize that it's really important that you give yourselves every opportunity to hear Graham uh, on the 7th of November. But also I can't stress how, enough how important this stage is um, and that we have as full a turnout as possible on the day of the meeting. Now the evening of that meeting will either be the 9th or the 11th of November. This stage we're just not sure when that will be exactly, but hopefully Gareth or someone will be able to confirm that uh, next week. I want just at this stage to commend the elders um, in your hearing for their approach to this all. Um, Kirk Session have been very prayerful about the whole process and been diligent in their follow-through, particularly at each stage of the process. For you, the congregation, now, can I ask you please to pray? To pray about this, what we hope will be the final stage of the process. Pray also for the unity of the church family as you go into this stage where you will be required to to make a call or make a decision at least about it. Pray for Graham as he prepares, um, because this is a trauma for a minister, possibly leaving his congregation in which he served and made friends, but also the uncertainty of the, if it's uncertain for you, it's doubly bad for the minister. There are a whole mix of emotions going into that. So pray for him as he prepares and also for his family because they are also caught up in this whole process as well. And so if you could do that, I certainly, as convener, would very much appreciate that you would do that and I'm sure the elders would as well. Okay, thanks, Dan. So we're not going to stop for announcements later in our service, but I just wanted to draw your attention uh, again to the uh, shoebox appeal. There's a few more boxes 
Most of them all went last week. Uh, there's going to be a lot more boxes ordered in. So it was very, very encouraging to see so many taken. Uh, please, if you can, uh, agree to take another box. Uh, give one to somebody else in your family. Um, it's a wonderful way that we can send blessing from this congregation out to boys and girls, families um, all across the world. So uh, please take a box if you can. Um, our reading this morning comes from Acts chapter 8. Uh, we're going to read uh, from verse 1 through to 25. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Christ there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs he did, they all paid close attention to what he said. With shrieks, evil spirits came out of many, and many paralytics and cripples were healed. So there was great joy in that city. Now for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great, and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, This man is the divine power known as the great power. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached and the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized. And he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. When they arrived, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them. They had simply been baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, "'Give me also this ability.'" so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter answered, May your money perish with you, because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry, because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord. Perhaps he will forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Then Simon answered, Pray to the Lord for me, so that nothing you have said may happen to me. When they had testified and proclaimed the word of the Lord, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. This is the word of God.
realized I'm meant to be wearing my mic. This is what happens when you haven't been here for a week. Um, but maybe I can do without this, actually. First of all, I want to start by thanking Monty for stepping in last week. Um, though I have to say, I need to defend myself a little and say I wasn't pulling a sickie so that I didn't have to preach a 72-verse passage. Um, Our reading today is much shorter than that, to be sure, but it's no less important, and there's quite a lot going on here, as we'll see. It it focuses on the second of those deacons we met in Acts 6, you'll remember. This time it's Philip. And often we think of Philip in relation to the Ethiopian eunuch, which we'll be thinking about in our discipleship groups this week. But as important as that meeting is in the story, it's no more significant than the verses we've read together this morning. Verses that perhaps are often overlooked as we preach through a book like Acts. Now, if you've been paying attention to this series, you'll know why the verses we've just read are really important. You'll remember the Great Commission in Acts chapter 1. When Jesus says to his disciples, And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And you know that these words of Jesus provide a structure of the entire book of Acts. As Luke records how the Holy Spirit leads the church to fulfill the mission of Jesus, beginning in Jerusalem and extending to the ends of the earth. So today's reading is really important because it focuses on the middle section of that great commission, the proclamation of the gospel in Samaria. And I want to explore this Sumerian narrative by taking it in three stages, because there actually is quite a lot going on here, maybe even more than the 72 verses Monty had last week. First of all, we've got verses 1 to 4, Stephen's death and its aftermath. And then we have the witness in Samaria in verses 5 to 8, and then finally, we have this dramatic encounter between the two Simons, Simon Peter and Simon the Magician in verses 9 to 25. So let's begin with the first of these stages, which I'm calling a bathroom floor moment. Guy Raz is a journalist who has a particular interest in entrepreneurs, people who've made a big impact in business or culture. And in his book and his very popular podcast, How I Built This?, Raz investigates the people behind those big global companies we've all heard of, those companies that have had such a huge impact in our world, for better or worse. Visionaries like Ben and Jerry of ice cream fame, or James Dyson, who revolutionized how we all hoover our carpets. In his interviews with these people, Raz tries to figure out how they achieved the success they did. And one of the things he discovers is that really all of their stories are pretty much the same. For all of them, there's a moment of crisis, of extreme pressure early on, when it seems as though all their big plans are about to fall apart. But he discovered too that it's in these moments of crisis that there's a real breakthrough. Because these crises become defining moments, turning points that lead to their ultimate success. Here's how Raz puts it. At the deepest level, how I built this is about who these successful entrepreneurs were 
when they were lying on the bathroom floor crying about a failure or crisis, because that's relatable for all of us. I want to suggest to you that these first few verses of Acts 8 represent a bathroom floor moment for the early church. This big idea we heard about in chapter 1 of bringing the gospel of Jesus to the ends of the earth, well, it seems to have fallen on its face here, doesn't it? Things have been going so well. We've been reading about this for ourselves in recent weeks, about how all the people in Jerusalem were in awe of the believers and their life together, about how the Spirit continued to work powerfully through his people, about how the Lord added daily to the number of those being saved. But with the stoning of Stephen, all this seems to be under threat. It looks as though the mission of Jesus could be about to come to an abrupt end. Certainly Saul would have it that way, wouldn't he? We read a violent persecution breaks out in Jerusalem and Saul, well, he's on a mission to destroy the church. With ruthless efficiency, he moved from house to house, dragging off both men and women and putting them in prison. This is a bathroom floor moment, if ever there was one. And let's not ignore the fact that, like the entrepreneurs Raz describes, Jesus' disciples find themselves crying over what has happened. Luke tells us that godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him, or loudly for him, as some translations put it. It's an easy verse to overlook, isn't it? But it seems an important one to acknowledge because I think it prevents us from romanticizing martyrdom. And it rescues us from the mistake of thinking that showing grief somehow implies a lack of faith or the absurd notion that real men don't cry. After all, if godly men and godly women don't cry, how are we to follow Christ's command to weep with those who weep? But it's important to state that while this bathroom floor moment elicits tears, they're not exactly the same tears as those entrepreneurs might cry as they're facing possible failure, are they? Because the believer's tears, when we look closely at it, are tears of defiance, shed in the certain hope that Christ's mission will continue. You see, one of the things I discovered this week is that Jewish law made it illegal to publicly mourn the death of a criminal. And in the eyes of the Jewish authorities, that's exactly what Stephen was, isn't it? He was a criminal. And so when the believers mourn loudly, they are mourning in defiance. Even in their tears, they are proclaiming the hope of resurrection. And I think it's in their tears, in this bathroom floor moment for the church, that the Spirit gives them the opportunity to rediscover their boldness for witness and to refocus on the Great Commission. You know, if we think about all the success of the Jerusalem mission, well, we can imagine just how easy it must have been for the church to become a little bit complacent with that bigger picture, to simply coast along, to ride on the waves of the, the rapid growth they experienced at Pentecost. 
And maybe that's what might have happened. Maybe they would have stayed in Jerusalem had the Spirit not used this bathroom floor moment as an opportunity to push the church out, to rescue them from their complacency. You know, the martyrdom of Stephen was a tragedy, yes. But it was also a wake-up call, wasn't it? It had the great effect of refocusing the early believers on the great commission of Jesus. It reminded them that their ultimate goal was to bring the gospel out of Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. Friends, if you will allow me to say it, you too are at the risk of becoming complacent. Under Christoph's ministry, this congregation experienced revitalization and rapid growth. But this is not the end of your story, of our story. God's only getting started here. And while it might be tempting for us to just coast along for a little bit, to ride on the wave of the glory days, the truth is, the Great Commission is still waiting to be fulfilled here in Ballyhackamore. And the Spirit is urging us to continue to play our part. I hope that in this period of vacancy, it's allowed you to rediscover that. Because in lots of ways, this last year has been a bathroom floor moment for us, hasn't it? But I pray that out of this challenging period of COVID-19 and vacancy, we might not see this as wasted time, but as an important opportunity for the Spirit to rock us out of our complacency to refocus us on the mission of God in Ballyhackamore and to the ends of the earth. So that's stage one. What about stage two? Well, I'm calling this one Across Enemy Lines. I don't know about you, but if I was one of the Jewish followers of Jesus fleeing, fleeing persecution in Jerusalem, the last place I would want to go would be Samaria. It's hard to overestimate the animosity between Jews and Samaritans. We're all aware of this. Theoretically, they had more in common than with each other than with their Gentile neighbors. But in practice, they were mortal enemies. We get a bit of this, a taste of this in Luke's gospel in chapter 9. At that point in the story, the disciples enter a Samaritan town, but they get a less than enthusiastic welcome. And how do the disciples respond? Well, you might remember James and John turned to Jesus and they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? No love lost there, was there? I should say Jesus did rebuke them. It's important to note that. And yet in the face of persecution, where does Philip go? He goes straight to Samaria. We might say out of the frying pan into the fire. But it doesn't turn out like that, as we read. Philip's reception is radically different from what James and John encountered. In fact, it's nothing short of miraculous. It's so positive, in fact, that some commentators call this the Samaritan Pentecost. The Samaritans, we read, pay attention to Philip. And that resulted in great joy in that city. Now, as I thought about this, I wondered... Is part of Philip's success to do with his more positive approach? I mean, he wasn't there reluctantly. He has got none of James and John's hostility. Philip's not interested in calling down fire from heaven. Instead, he's only interested in using his hands to bestow blessing upon the Samaritans. 
And somehow this deacon of the church, this table waiter, recognizes something the disciples in Luke 9 could not. That God's desire for people extends even into Samaria. That even our historic enemies can have a share in the kingdom of God. And that the grace of God is powerful enough to transcend even the most ingrained hatred and suspicion. The response of the Samaritans is really astounding when you think of it. I mean, think of it from their perspective for a moment. It's one thing to, to, to look at a Jew like Philip going into Samaria, but think what it must have taken, the humility it must have taken for a Samaritan to receive grace at the hands of an enemy. It's the miracle of the gospel, isn't it? And Luke underscores this miracle for us by bringing that disciple John back into the picture. That same disciple who wanted to wipe the Samaritans clean off the face of the earth. Well, that old John is gone, isn't he? Now this John joins his hands with Philip in an act of blessing. And notice what he does when he leaves Philip's new Samaritan church. Before, well, he would have hot-footed it back to Jerusalem. But now he and Peter, they stay in Samaria. They go from village to village proclaiming that Jesus is the Messiah. And so it begs the question for us, where is our Samaria? Where are those places that we think are lost causes? Where do we think we will find a cold reception for the gospel? Well, let me suggest to you that if you can imagine such places then perhaps it's because we're still thinking like John the disciple and not John the apostle. We're still drawing boundaries, like Monty talked about last week, between us and them, deciding for ourselves who's in and who's out. Instead, let us be like this renewed John, the John who witnessed the miracle of God's grace in Samaria, the John who was emboldened to go and stand with Philip on the margins Because he knew that the only way to eradicate those boundaries is to stand on them, to cross enemy lines, to be on the ground with God. That's stage two. Finally, stage three, the curious case of Simon the Magician. Now, none of us is perfect, but at least we can take comfort in the fact that we don't have a sin named after us. At least I don't. I don't know if anybody else here does. But that's not the case for poor Simon the magician, is it? His name has come to be associated with what was believed to be one of the most pernicious sins of the medieval church. And one which continues to be with us today, though in different forms. The sin of simony, if you're not aware, is the sin of trying to buy positions of power, access, influence in the church. So derided was the sin in the medieval times that it invited one of the worst punishments in Dante's Inferno. You'll see it here on this cover of the Divine Comedy. Here they are, the, the Simonists, featured on the cover, buried upside down, with their feet sticking out, which were set on fire. Pretty grim stuff. It's Simon Magus of Acts 8 who gets the dishonor of giving his name to this sin. 
because of his foolish attempt to think that he could buy the Holy Spirit. Peter doesn't hesitate to put him straight, does he? I like the way Friedrich Buechner puts it in his paraphrase, Peculiar Peculiar Treasures. Here's how he puts it. God didn't belong to the magician's union, Peter told him. And as for the hard cash, well, he knew what he could do with it. He said that maybe if Simon Magus repented, God would overlook what had happened. But he didn't make the prospect sound too hopeful. There might still be hell to pay. It's a sad and sobering moment in an otherwise joyful passage. Simon initially responded positively to Philip's message after all. In fact, Luke tells us that he believed and was baptized. But it soon becomes clear to us that Simon has not yet learned the humility he needs to truly follow Jesus. He's not yet been cut to the heart. Instead, well, Simon quickly finds himself hankering after his old life. It's pretty simple, isn't it? He wants his position of power back. He wants to return to performing tricks for the adulation of the crowd like some first century Houdini. But his desire for performance only reveals his fundamental misunderstanding of the gospel, which, as we know, is about humility and not strength, which tells us that power comes through weakness and which directs all glory to God alone. But, you know, it's easy to to be really hard on, on Simon to completely write him off, but maybe we should take a minute and just think that though he is misguided at best and certainly blasphemous at worst, it's not actually inconsistent, his actions, with how we might expect somebody of his background to behave. You see, in my reading this week, I discovered something interesting, that those who traded in magic and hokum in the ancient world, they did just that. They traded. They bought tricks from one another. And so, as wrong-footed as Simon might be here, well, really, he's operating within his own social logic. It's just what people in Simon's trade did. Now, I wonder, do we do that too, in a way? Do we still operate within our social logic and not kingdom logic? Let me give you one example of the ways I think we're at risk of doing this. And I'll put it to you as a question, okay? The question is, how do you measure success? Do you measure success according to the logic of the kingdom? Or do you go by the social logic of our cultural moment? You know, one of the things I was really frustrated by as a teacher is how our whole education system is geared towards producing future contributors to the economy. Success in our culture is married, married, or measured, sorry, not married, measured in terms of GDP. This way of thinking leaves little room for kingdom values of service and self-sacrifice and kingdom logic that the first will be last. And this means that the message our young people hear is that success in life is about achieving good grades getting a well-paid job also that we can buy more stuff. 
I mean, why else is a podcast called How I Built This as popular as it is? Because people crave this sort of success. And don't get me wrong, I worked hard to get my students good grades. I wanted to see them succeed in their careers. But it's not all I wanted for them. Because I know that such things are not the measure of a life well lived. You know, for all Guy Raz's insight, I prefer the wisdom of the prophet Micah. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? That's what a successful life looks like, according to kingdom logic. It's the sort of life we talked about on Climate Sunday, if you remember. Life that truly is life. And if we want to see what this life looks like, we could do worse than look at Philip. Because Philip's, I think, is an example of a life well lived. He did something really important with the life God gave him. I mean, his willingness to follow where the Spirit leads caused a ripple effect that has reverberated through history, reaching down even to us here in Belfast. Just think of the future lives we might touch if we had that same boldness to live by a different logic. I mentioned Frederick Buechner a minute ago, and I want to just finish with this from his book, The Hungering Dark, in which he writes that the life I touch, for good or ill, will touch another life, and in turn another, until who knows where the trembling stops, or in what far place my touch will be felt. Friends, let us give thanks that the touch of Philip and Peter and John on the lives of those in Samaria is still felt by us today. And let us be mindful of how God might use our touch on the lives of those around us in unknown ways for his glory and for the good of his kingdom. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We're going to sing now how deep the Father's love for us. Let's stand and sing together. Let's uh, bow our heads and pray together. Father, in our prayers of intercession this morning, we come back to that gift that you generously pour out into our lives. Lord, if there aren't enough vessels and containers to catch it, It must be that there is more of your love, your presence, your glory and power to go around than just for ourselves. Lord, our desire is to be overflowing, a welling up of the fruits of the Spirit. Lord, help us to be a community that reaches out to the community around us. May your gift be shared and your light shine brightly through Tots and Sunday Club, Bible Class and District, BB and GB, Converse and Duke of Ed, the Globe Cafe and the Mums Bible Study, PW and the Friendship Club. As you bless and empower us to share this light as a Jesus community together, May that light also continue to burn in the experience of individual matchheads 
as we each live out our daily lives. May your presence, glory, and power be taken into our homes, our neighborhood, our schools, our places of work, the rugby or hockey clubs or the gym, the school gate and the PTA, the dwellings of the lonely and isolated, and those sick and in hospital or in nursing homes. Let the mind and fragrance of Jesus Christ, present in his indwelling spirit, shine through our lives, actions, and in our words. To a broken and hurting world, may your church be gift bearers, sharing the presence of Jesus on our doorstep, in our neighborhood, and wherever you may lead us. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, We'll close our time of worship together by standing to sing in Christ alone. Hi, my name is Alan and I have the absolute privilege of getting to head up Storehouse here in Belfast. If you've never heard of Storehouse, we are a local charity. We've been operating for over 13 years now, blessing and serving our local community here in Belfast. We kind of think about what we do in terms of three different things. Number one, provision. We seek to provide the basic essentials for those who are struggling to provide them for themselves, whether that's food or clothes or furniture, household goods. We do that all free of charge, 365 days in the year. Secondly, community. We think everybody deserves the opportunity to be in positive, encouraging, life-giving community. And so we create lots of spaces for anyone to step into that, whether it's through art or music, through sport or food, or simply just a space to belong. And then finally, growth. We want to see people flourish. We want to see anyone move forward towards their goals and aspirations and out of the moment that they're caught in. And so we want to walk alongside people through training and encouragement to see them move forward and fulfill their potential. And I suppose in all of that, how we sum that up is that we want to develop communities in this city that recognize the significance in everyone. You may be well aware that over the last few weeks, the government have begun to rule out their high street voucher scheme here in Northern Ireland. And alongside that, we want to launch a project called Pass It On. Lots of you have been contacting us and saying, how could we use our voucher? How could we pass that on to someone in need? We want to bless our local high street. We want to see our local businesses flourish. So if you want to pass it on this winter, we've created two ways that you can do that. Firstly, we've put together a pass it on list of items that we think those who use Storehouse could benefit from this winter. So you could go to one of your local high street shops, a local small business, and buy something from that list and then give it to us and we'll pass it on. Or secondly, you could go to the local high street, buy something that you want, something that you need, and then make an equivalent cash donation to Storehouse. And we'll use that money then to spend on the needs of those that we serve week in, week out. Either way, firstly, we just want to say thank you. Thank you for partnering with us here at Storehouse. And secondly, however you choose to spend your voucher this winter, we want to make sure that it gets passed on to those who are most in need.